We'll be talking to Cuggan Festival poetry organiser Diane Leclerc. And there'll be an episode of Tilly's Fiction Addiction. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself this morning, sponsored by the Little Bookshop in Cookham. Good morning, Julian. How are you today? Julian, are you there? Oh, at the moment I can't hear you, so never mind. Let me say a big thank you to Deborah for her uh, her programme. Very interesting. I'm breathing deeply just to relax. And uh, I was actually reading about a great meditation technique, actually. You're supposed to go on a, um, a big dipper. And the whole idea is you just got to sit on the Big Dipper, go through the ride and try and stop screaming. And if you can do that, you're meditating. So there, there's a little tip for you. Anyway, every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. You're listening to River Radio and Turning Pages, and it's never been easier as we're now broadcasting on DAB. You can also listen to River Radio on almost any internet-connected device or smart speaker. There's a host of great programmes you can listen to, both music and talk-focused, and Turning Pages is on every Wednesday between 11 and 12, and it's repeated on Saturday afternoon between 2 and 3. And if you want to catch up on any of our past programmes you might have missed, then you can listen again either directly from our uh, website and Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. So you just need to search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Now, do I have Julian? Hello. Hello there. How How are you? Hello. I can't hear you. Can't ah, hear you. you can't hear can't us, but well, we can hear you. Hang on for a minute. Uh, I've got my technical expert, Aka Sam, um, in the in the studio this morning. I can't hear. Um, just sorting that out. So, as uh, we normally say, um, we would love to hear from you. So you can contact either me or Julian on Julian at River Radio. Julian, can you hear me now? I can hear you ah, now. Can you hear me? I can indeed. Good. I'm just giving out your email address there. Oh, if you don't mind. Oh, without my permission. I oh. know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying, send any book news to you. Super. Yes, that's great. Please do. We would really do want to hear from you. Come on, send in those emails. <laughs> Marvellous. Right. So, as always, we've got a fun-filled programme designed for you this week. Uh, coming up, we have Diane Leclerc, who's organising the poetry events at the Cookham Festival this year. Now, last, year, last week we were telling you that the festival runs between May the 6th to the 22nd and there are three fabulous poetry events which Diana will be telling us about plus her recommendations of what other events have caught her eye. 
And one uh, one of those poetry events is going to be um, taken up with uh, Mike Burton, who is our casual poet. Um, he's going to be at the festival, uh, but he's also got a poem for us later today. Great stuff. Tilly Brogan will be recommending The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Saffron in Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And I know it's a favourite of both of ours, isn't it? Yes, which we've, which we've featured before as well. But it's always good to, to remind listeners, but we've also got new listeners because of DAB Radio, so they'll be fascinated. Now, we'll be looking at um, colours in books, um, particularly the colour of blue, which is quite dominant, but there is also another colour that I'll be talking about. It's sort of blue, isn't it? Well, it's, well, if you want to say that. (laughs) I was thinking, I was thinking it was on the blue spectrum. (laughs) So, so when were you, did you discover you were colourblind, Heather? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and to start the show, shut up you. <laughs> and to start the show, we've been scouring the papers once again to spot interesting book news for you. So shall we start with our quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently? Yes, and there's one that was really, it, it's actually a lovely story. I mean, it, it comes out about something that was, was, was quite horrible. But um, apparently, um, two stolen notebooks, which had been written by Charles Darwin, have been mysteriously returned to Cambridge University Library 22 years after they were last seen. Now, they are qu- quite small. They're small leather-bound books, and they're worth several million pounds um, as a set. And they include uh, um, the scientist's Tree of Life sketch. So it's really important. We covered this, didn't we? When the uh, we did when it, went, when it happened. That's yes. Right. Well, not when it happened, but no, when no, no, they but did yeah, a big yes. publicity about <laughs> yeah. it. Yes, we can't claim we were on the scoop there no. when we saw somebody nicking it. But <laughs> there we go. Never mind. As we say, never let truth get in the way of a good story. Eh? Now, the, now the return comes interesting, which was 15 months after the BBC had first ha- highlighted that they'd been stolen, and the library had la- launched a worldwide appeal to, to to try and get them back. Now, interestingly, they were left um, anonymously in a bright pink gift bag uh, containing the original blue box in which they were that they were stored um, and the, it, it came with a brown envelope and on the envelope was printed a very short message librarian happy easter kisses now Aww. i know inside uh, were the two no- notebooks which had been wrapped tightly in cling film um, and the package had been left um, on the floor in the public part of the library near to Dr. Gardner, the curator's office. However, there were no CCTV cameras in that section of the library, so we don't know who brought the, them back. But Dr. Gardner said she was absolutely shaking um, uh, when she saw the bag and its contents uh, when they appeared on the 9th of March, but she was very cautious because she continued, because she said she didn't really... Uh, um, know to, uh, whether they were going to be genuine, 100% genuine, until they unwrapped them. Now, they had to go through an agonising five days because uh, after finding them, the police were involved, of course, and it took the police five days to grant permission for them to open the cling film. I suppose they and, thought they might have been bombs. Or well, they, they, it could well be. Yes. It, could have, it could have been some noxious um, chemicals oh, in yes, there. It could have been yes. all sorts of things. You never know which could have caused, uh, well, not only death and injury, but great damage. Now, the notebooks date from the 1830s, um, which Darwin had had written after he returned from the Galapagos Island. And on one page, 
there is the little spindly um, sketch of the tree, the tree of life, which I referred to, which actually helped um, Darwin um, in his inspiration, in his theory of evolution, which appeared 20 years later in his seminal work, which was um, the on the origin of species, which, as we know, was the single most groundbreaking theory in life and earth environmental scientists. Now, the really good news is that the public can get uh, to see these because they're going on public display in July as part of an exhibition, which is free of charge, and it's called Darwin in Conversation. That is a great good news story. Yeah, it, it is, isn't it? Lovely one. Nice yeah. summer one. But you can imagine, can't you, taking a book home from the library to study or something. Mm. And then, of course, you want to show it to your mate that's coming round the next week for a yes. dinner party. So you sort of keep it. And then you put it on your shelf and then you forget yep. about it. Forget about and it, And then yes. 22 years later, you're a bit too embarrassed <laughs> to own up that you're exactly. the guilty party. Exactly. But, of course, I mean, it, it, there's quite a history of theft from libraries. But anyway, that's another subject. We, yeah. you've, got another, you've got another news item. There, I though. have got another news item. And this is David McKee. He's the children's author and illustrator known for the Mr. Ben series as sadly died at the age of 87. So he's a Devon-born writer, and he also created Elmer the Patchwork Elephant, and Mm -hmm. Not Now, Bernard, that's my (laughs) husband's favourite children's (laughs) story, Not Now, Bernard, which sold more than 10 million books around the world. So McKee's character, Mr. Ben, famously wore a black suit and a bowler hat, and he went on a series of adventures. And in each story, Mr. Ben visited a fancy dress store, tried on a different outfit and before leaving the shop he went through a magic door and went on a journey uh, related to whatever costume he was wearing and the concept was adapted for watch with mother and I remember watching it with my little sister Um, so did you watch Mr Ben? Uh, well, no, because um, my father took a very dim view of television and we never had a set in the house. Oh, right. Well, he was mm. probably wise, but I, yes. en- I enjoyed watching it with my sister. Anyway, I was reading a lovely story in the Times newspaper last week and they were recounting the story that uh, someone was writing an article about Mr. Key, Mr. Sorry, McKee. And they were phoned him up to discuss an illustration that they wanted to use about his mm. books for the article. And the idea was they would picture McKee and Mr. Ben having a beer together in the pub. Right. And so they rang him up to ask his permission and he thought, and the illustrator thought about it. And then he said, well, only if Mr. Ben is drinking a half pint. <laughs> 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 he obviously had a really keen sense of Mr. Ben in his mind. Yes. <laughs> so Elmer the Patchwork Elephant, which is one I don't know, actually. No, I don't. That was published first in 1968. It's about a multicoloured elephant who has to learn to cope with being different. Mm. And the books are still on the national curriculum for primary schools and used to promote inclusivity and diversity today. Ah. And the 30th Elmer book, Elmer and the Gift, is to be published this September. Oh, excellent. Lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Right, now what else have you got? Well, um, now, this is very interesting. Did you know that the British Library is running out of shelf space? (gasps) 
It's all, <laughs> all those books being published in lockdown. It, it is, it is. And very interestingly, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but maybe maybe some of our listeners don't, but it's actually a legal requirement that a, every book, every single book that is published in the UK, along with every newspaper and, and, and every journal, is to be deposited in the British Library, physically deposited, not a digital, physically. And that apparently has been the case in some form since 1662. Wow, that's brilliant, isn't it? It is. Now, bearing in mind that in books alone, there are 300,000 books. So we're not even talking about newspapers that come out every day Mm. and periodicals that come out weekly, monthly. 300,000 books arrive at the library every year, uh, which, not surprisingly, it's existing. Now, this is quite staggering. 373 miles of shelving just isn't enough to cope. And the estimates are that they're going to run out of space in two years' time. Now, the government, fortunately, the culture department has uh, coughed up £95 million in de- uh, investment to redevelop the, the, the main depository, uh, which is in Boston Spa. Now, obviously, Lincolnshire is much cheaper than London for storage space, so they have a huge facility up in Boston Spa. Um, but that means that anybody um, going to uh, the library in London, which you must go and want to draw out a book, may have to wait up to two days to get the book because obviously uh, the, the message has to be sent up to Boston and then it has to be robotically picked, packed, and then sent down to London for the reader. Um, now, the new uh, warehouse is, is will have an estimated additional 137 miles of extra storage which they're hoping will last them into the next century goodness me well we'll have to see won't we that puts our our little library collections into perspective doesn't it (laughs) i think i might have to see how many miles our library is Mm, yes. yes. <laughs> so I'm obviously on the obituary desk uh, today because I've yes. sadly got another death to report. Oh. And this time it's Henry Patterson. Now, you might know, know him, of course, slightly better, um, as he wrote under the pseudonym Jack Higgins. And he ah, sadly, yes. sadly died at the age of 92. Now, the author wrote, of course, the best-selling book, The Eagle Has Landed. Mm. He also wrote over 85 other novels, including Comes the Dark Stranger, Hell is Too Crowded, and To Catch a King. And altogether, he sold more than 250 million copies worldwide. So, fabulous, uh, fabulous author there. He was a sort mm. of a classic thriller writer, and his novels sort of were and remain um, absolutely unputdownable. So, he used to work as a lecturer, and he started to write in his spare time. And his first books to be published were uh, described as serviceable thrillers of the hard-boiled variety. Um, all cynical protagonists living out violent lives in dangerous places. Now, he got the idea for The Eagles Landed um, when he was on his national service and he was in a bar and he had a conversation with a Russian soldier who told him about the German wartime plot uh, about uh, the idea of kidnapping uh, Winston Churchill. So obviously it was a real it was a real plot. Mm. So anyway, um, some years later, he decided to pluck the idea out of his uh, out of his brain and start writing a, uh, a story about it. And when he'd written it, he obviously sent it off to publishers, and lots of them weren't interested. Some said that 
one felt that it sounded like a bird book because I had eagle up and another right. one just turned it down because it, it was really boring. But anyway, it eventually did go on to sale and he became a millionaire within four months. Good grief. That just is amazing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it sold more than 50 million copies and busloads of tourists would visit the North Norfolk coast looking for Studley Constable, which is the, the village where the kidnap is supposed to take place. Um, now, of course, the book was made into a film yes. in 1976, Gosh. featuring Robert Duval, Donald Sutherland and Michael Caine, and is a firm favourite in our It episode. is, it is, yeah. yeah. And the village, of course, they used was Maple Durham. Oh, right, just, <laughs> just, on, just down the river. Absolutely, just down the river. <laughs> so Jack Higgins uh, was a prolific writer. He produced three books a year and Gosh. often used lots of different pseudonyms. Uh, because publishers aren't very keen on publishing lots from mm. the same author. No, yes. And he went on to say that the one thing you learn is that nobody knows what will sell. And that's obviously what maintained his enthusiasm for writing. Yes, which which is uh, quite prescient on what he learned, because obviously the um, those publishers he approached first with The Eagle Has Landed didn't know what was going to sell. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there we are, you know, egg on your face to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're going to come with a little bit of news about the Cookham Festival, which you've hinted at. Now, I, they, for our listeners, there's going to be 40 events which are designed to amuse and to entice and fascinate the entire family at the Cookham Festival this year. So you should really go along. There are going to be talks, there are going to be walks, there's going to be drama, and there's going to be a comedy um, um, a, a sit-in, which will be um, side-by-side with the famous sculptor garden at uh, Odney Club. There are going to be dance classes, which will cater for those budding Strictly Come Dancing fans. And for those of you who are budding authors, which are off because we're keen to develop, there's going to be a workshop um, on uh, to develop your writing skills. Now, also, if you are an artist, there are going to be um, artist workshops, so you can go and learn, if you don't know how to already, how to paint your pet. Well, not paint it, but, you know, make a picture of your pet. Um, and then, for anybody who's uh, who likes a bit of a warble, there's a sing-along with the Anything Goes um, uh, course. And, of course... There's going to be the fabulous spoken word section, which, of course, we're really keen on, which is about books, plays, broadcasting and poetry. Uh, And we're going to be featuring all of these bits and pieces over the next few weeks. Great, yes. I was speaking with Diane Leclerc, who's the organiser of the pop-up poetry events at the festival, to find out more information. Let's listen to our conversation. Diana, welcome. You're doing the poetry element in Cookham Festival. So tell me a little bit about pop-up poetry events. Well, thank you very much, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Basically, pop-up poetry was started about two and a half years ago for National Poetry Day. And my mission around Maidenhead and the local locality is to encourage people to think of poetry as something that's a pleasure, a great joy, and it gives you a chance to share thoughts with other people. How can we get involved? Pop-up poetry was started on National Poetry Day in 2019 when the topic was lying. And we now meet once a month in Maidenhead Library and people bring poems they've written or poems that they've liked on a theme that we select. 
That sounds marvellous. And how big is the group? There are 10 members and usually there are about eight people who come. Fantastic. And that's about the right number because we like to do it in the open. And the idea is that if somebody just wanted to drop in on an odd occasion, they could still join us. Looking now at the Cook and Festival, there are two types of sessions that you're running. So we've got the poetry takeaway sessions and then we've got the local connections evening. So tell me about the poetry takeaway session. Well, we're delighted to be able to host it in the the Odney Garden, where the sculptures will be going on. The idea of the poetry takeaway is that we will offer a menu of some 120 poems on different subjects, such as colours, family, famous sonnets. The visitors can pick a poem, have it read to them, or if they would like, I will make a copy available so that they can read it out loud in the garden. I always remember going across one of the bridges in uh, Dublin and they have people reciting poetry to you there and I always thought that was such a lovely idea. Well it will be on that line. There is a campaign called Poetry by Heart which actually was funded a few years back by the Department of Education and Science and they are still going although a lot of it is done by Zoom but the final is held live and uh, the students I think it's going to be at the Globe Theatre this year. Oh, marvellous. So there are initiatives, but not in every school. Yes, the Duchess, Duchess of Cornwall was doing something about learning poetry by heart and reciting some of her favourite poems, because it's something that's so joyous to be able to remember bits of poetry to recite, isn't it? Absolutely. And the things that you've learned going back in years, some of them stay with you, you know, all these years later and you come across them. Just like at the moment, I don't know if you know, but there's an Eliot poem, uh, The Wasteland. And I just read an article in the paper and it starts, April is the cruelest month. And that, of course, is a line from The Wasteland. So the poetry takeaway session then is that we can go up and we can ask for our favourite poems and we can either recite them ourselves or we can hear them being recited. So it can take us back to the times that we learned. What's one of your favourite poems that you would want to have? Well, I think, gosh, I think I would go back to the, one of the first ones I learned at my primary school, which is upon Westminster Bridge. Oh, yes. 1802, William Wordsworth, Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. We always say that when we walk over the Westminster Bridge. (laughs) That's the first one. And that, I understand, is going to be on each of the Saturdays. You don't actually have to pay specifically to to listen to the poetry or get involved in the poetry. There's a small charge to get into the sculpture garden, which is amazing anyway, because it's the John Lewis Country Club Gardens, which is magnificent in Cookham. Absolutely. That's why I was very thrilled. I think it'll be a lovely spot, particularly if we get a nice May day. Oh, let's hope so. Fingers crossed for that. <laughs> so you're also doing something in the evening, which is going to be slightly different. So tell us about that. When is when is that? Yes. That's on Friday, the 20th of May at mm-hmm. 7.30 in the Pinder Hall. And there are two acts for our local connections evening. Mm-hmm. The first act will be readings of poetry and prose by published authors who have a connection with Cookham or Maidenhead or 
Windsor anything in the surrounds here. Oh, great. So I'm so, immediately, I'm thinking of uh, <laughs> Jerome K. Jerome, for example, with three men in a boat. There will be a section from Three Men in a Boat. There will be a section from Wind in the Willows. There will be an extract from a Roald Dahl book. So a whole range of stuff. Oh, and then more serious poems such as Shelley, who wrote Ozymandias in 1818. People say possibly in Marlowe. He was certainly living there at the mm-hmm. time, as was his wife, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Of course. So we really go from the fun to the serious to the dramatic in a, a relatively short space of time. So who will be reading? I'm planning to be the narrator. I've got two professionals and then I'm hoping there should be two students from a local school, which is really exciting when I talk to them about it they were really interested and are hoping very much to be able to be part of it and then you said there's a second act to the evening and the idea is after a short interval we've invited eight or ten local poets people who have been inspired either by the neighborhood or who've taken to poetry during lockdown who will share their poems and we've got uh the casual poet who Mike will be bringing his collection of poems, the Vara's Poems, which is published during lockdown. The casual poet, of course, is a great friend of River Radio, as it's Mike Burton, who does one of the shows. Then there is a chap called Patrick Osada, and in fact he had a submission in the Stanley Spencer Gallery Poetry Competition in 2016. He's published, he's written a book called From the Family Album. I think that's his sixth or seventh, and that's rather nice. And then we've got one or two people who started writing during the And I'm hoping that there will be Sylvia, who's written, who's publishing a book of poetry in aid of the Alexander Divine Hospice. Great. I love the fact that you're saying that we've got some poets that have started during the uh, the pandemic. It just shows you that you can start writing poetry at any time. I think that's really the aim of the session, is that it's not about becoming a Wordsworth. It's about using poetry to express yourself and enjoying the pleasure of words. Who are you anticipating will come along for this evening? Because it sounds great fun. I'm hoping that people might come who've enjoyed poetry at some time in their life. People who sort of are thinking, gosh, I wonder what it would be like. It's really aimed at a whole range of age and interests. So that's Friday evening, May the 20th at Pinder Hall. So that's lots going on with regards to poetry. So apart from poetry, the Cook and Festival obviously is this fabulous arts festival over the two weeks. Have you spotted anything else you might be interested in? Well, certainly Under Milkwood has caught my attention. And Ah. in fact, I've booked a ticket for the 14th in the evening. I've heard Robert Farragut talk, Mm -hmm. and he's very good value. I recommend that because he's such an entertaining person, apart from the fact that he can write a good local thriller. Yes, I mean, Robert Um, Farragut also writes the um, screenplays for Death in Paradise, which has obviously been going on for years on BBC. He's fascinating about that. So I would recommend that. I noticed there's something on the history of the BBC, which caught my attention. Yes, for the 100th Um, anniversary of the BBC. So that should be really good. And the other item, given what we were talking about earlier, um, the other item I would go, in fact, I've got tickets for, is the Anything Goes Sing-Along. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) Because 
One of the things that's really fascinating with poetry is the lyrics that some of these guys used. I mean, and that musical, much as I love the um, music and the dancing, but the thing that is really outstanding is this wonderful lyrics that Cole Porter produced. Yes. So I shall be listening to poetry with music. That's fantastic. And a really good thought, actually, that people who might not think they're into poetry but are into music, they're actually just listening to poetry with music, aren't they? It's not something to be frightened of. It's something to be embraced. Well, I hope that encourages lots of people to come along. There are three really interesting events at the festival. So thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you. So Diane was talking about the poets who will be joining us on the uh, Friday the 20th. And that, of course, includes the casual poet, River Radio's very own Mike Burton. Mike wrote a book called The Virus Poems, which was a poem a day written during the pandemic, linked with a story from the news. It's a fabulous book, offering an insight into our own emotions, plus a reminder of what was happening during this very strange time in the world. Yes, indeed. So um, I think let's listen to one of his poems, which is called Birds and Bees from This Very Day 2020. Excellent. Birds and bees. Don't get carried away now. This is not about making love. It's just about what it says. Birds and bees and stuff. About animals and insects, oblivious of the disease... Have they not seen the briefing about social distance, please? How come I have to stay apart if dogs can play around, if birds can fly in crowded flocks? Why can't I hit the town? You don't see police policing them with barriers and fines. They're allowed to make more trips, not stuck in all the time. I clearly blame the government. I have to blame someone. They should have clamped down harder. That's what they should have done. All birds must stay sat in their nests and bees hum in their hives. They're only allowed four times a day to buzz around and fly. And don't mention horses. Do not get me started there. Them's and cows and pigs as well. They really just don't care. We're all in this together. That's what they said to us. But I believe the animals are driving a different bus. Don't forget to feed the swans. lovely poem there by um by by mike and so the cooking festival is on between the 6th to the 22nd of may in cookham village and full data details can be found on the website which is cookhamfestival.co.uk and you can find out all the information required and book tickets directly from the website and the pop-up poetry takeaway is on both saturdays so that's may the 7th and may the 14th between 2 and 4 p.m and will take place at the Odney Club Gardens. And the pop-up poetry Local Connections is on Friday the 20th at 7.30 at Pinder Hall. And now it's time for Tilly's Fiction Addiction. We've already mentioned uh, that she's going to be talking about one of our favourite books here. So I was chatting to her earlier this week about um, this book. Tilly, hi. What book have you chosen to recommend to us this week? Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon this week. I've got to say that's one of my favourite books. So, yeah. One of mine as well, don't worry. Excellent. So how did you discover the book? I was applying to get into university to do English and Spanish 
five, six years ago now. And my tutor suggested that I write a lit review in my personal statement. And because I was doing joint honours, he suggested that I read a book that was in Spanish or had been translated. I literally just Googled books like that. I found this book and I just fell in love with it completely. First of all, what a great idea for a personal statement. Yeah, he was a good tutor. Yeah, but what a fun thing to do as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I got into uni, so. And did you read it in the Spanish? I haven't yet. It's on my list of things to do, but it's on my bucket list is to read this in its original language, yeah. Okay, right. So describe the book in a sentence. When I was thinking about this, I've come up with my own sentence, but there's also a really good quote by Stephen King. So we'll start with my suggestion first, which would be, a thriller with a side of romance, mystery and humour set in 1940s Barcelona. Okay. But a, another way, Shadow is the Real Deal, a novel full of cheesy splendour and creaking trapdoors, novel where even the subplots have subplots, ah. which I think is kind of accurate as well. That's right, because it's quite, it's a woven story, isn't there? There's lots going yeah. on. There's a lot going on. So you've given us an overview of what it's about. So now sort of give us a, a more detailed summary. It follows Danielle, who when he is 10 years old, his father takes him to a secret library of forgotten books, asks him to choose one. He picks a book by an author called Julian Carax, and the plot basically follows Danielle's journey, finding out more about Carax, his life, the book, how he got there and including why someone is tracking down every last copy of Carax's books and burning them. So the whole plot is just unravelling the thread that Danielle's picked on. So what is it about the book that particularly appeals to you? I think there are so many like plot twists and turns. I think the pacing's really good. I think it definitely picks up. I don't usually read thrillers, one of my favourite books, so it's definitely got me there. It's also set in Barcelona, so I feel like if you've been there, you can really pitch the setting. I feel like Zaphon uses the city so well in the plot. And if you have been, you can really like understand where the characters are. And they actually do a Shadow of the Wind tour in Barcelona and they take you to all the places that he was likely influenced by when he wrote it. And then when I was living there a couple of years ago, I did the tour like a week into into moving and I loved it. It was great. Fantastic. Because Barcelona is such a brilliant city anyway. But that's fab that you went on the tour. Yeah, like the first week I was like, right, I need to do this. (laughs) That personal statement really got to you. (laughs) I did, yeah. It it really got me places, yeah. (laughs) So did you know much about the Spanish Civil War before you picked up the book? I had studied it at GCSE and A-level just when I was studying Spanish. But it was very much like a historical overview. It wasn't really very personal. And I feel like this gave me more personal experience on how it affected Spaniards like day to day. And the characters have their own relationship to the war. And it's interesting to read about how it affects them in different ways. I think rather than like a historical overview that's quite impersonal, having like a, I know it's obviously fictitious, personal aspect really did give it a new lease of life and a new perspective for me. Oh, I think fiction is a great way of being introduced to a bit of history, but also a bit of understanding of what it must be like to live through some terrible times. And we've got the war in Ukraine at the moment. And yeah, it all feeds into that, doesn't it? I definitely think it's a good way to explore it. You can go back and be immersed in it and learn more that way. What I really loved about the book myself is the atmosphere. You really feel it's sort of dark and mysterious and sort of forbidding, isn't it? It's like the the gothic influences. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. 
So I thought that was uh, great. So it's part of, it's book one of a trilogy, but you don't need to have read the other books. Have you read the other books? I have read the other books. I think this is definitely the best one. The others feel slightly more like magical realism-esque, which is obviously quite a shift, but they do follow the same characters. So I would obviously recommend them if you have read The Shadow of the Wind and you do enjoy it, but they are slightly different. And I do think this is the best one. And obviously this is the first one as well. So if you're going to start, start here. I thought this was a standalone book until a couple of years ago. And then I found out that there was about, well, there's more, there's um, another two books as well outside the series. And so I just read them all in one go. I couldn't believe that there was more. <clears throat> just shows what a good author he is though because actually, I know he just want you just to make to I was so them. shocked that there was more I was just I couldn't believe it I went out and bought them straight away so you've chosen a part from the book to read can you introduce the reading for us yeah so Danielle's closing up the bookstore that he works in which is his father's bookstore when he hears someone come in and then swiftly leave again. And so this person is someone who is watching Danielle and his investigation into Carrick's very, very close. Let's listen to this. The Shadow of the Winds, Chapter 13. I watched them leave arm in arm and disappear down Calisanta to Anna, hoping there was somebody on duty up in heaven who for once would grant the couple a lucky break. I hung the closed notice in the shop window. I had just gone into the back room for a moment to look through my father's order book when I heard the tinkle of the doorbell. I thought Fermin must have forgotten something, or perhaps my father was back from his day trip. Hello! A few seconds passed, and no answer came. I continued to leaf through the order book. I heard slow footsteps in the shop. Fermin? Father? No answer. I thought I heard a stifled laugh, and I shut the order book. Perhaps some client had ignored the clothes sign. I was about to go and serve whoever it was when I heard the sound of several books falling from the shelves. I swallowed. Grabbing hold of a letter opener, I slowly moved towards the door of the back room. I didn't dare call out a second time. Soon I heard the steps again walking away. The doorbell sounded and I felt a draught of air from the street. I peered into the shop. There was no one there. I ran to the front door and double-locked it and then took a deep breath, feeling ridiculous and cowardly. I was returning to the back room when I noticed a piece of paper on the counter. As I got closer, I realised it was a photograph, an old studio picture of the sort that were printed on thick cardboard. The edges were burned and the smoky image seemed to have charcoal finger marks over it. I examined it under the lamp. The photograph showed a young couple smiling at the camera. The man didn't look much older than 17 or 18, with light-coloured hair and delicate aristocratic features. The woman may have been a bit younger, one or two years at the most. She had pale skin and a finely chiselled face framed by short black hair. She looked drunk with happiness. The man had his arm round her waist, and she seemed to be whispering something to him in a teasing way. The image conveyed a warmth that drew a smile from me, as if I had recognised two old friends in those strangers. Behind them I could make out an ornate shop window full of old-fashioned hats. I concentrated on the couple. From their clothes I could guess that the picture was at least twenty-five or thirty years old. It was an image full of light and hope, rich with the promise that only exists in the eyes of the young.' 
Fire had destroyed almost all of the area surrounding the photograph, but you could still discern a stern face behind the old-fashioned counter, a suggestion of a ghostly figure behind the letters engraved on the glass. Sons of Antonio Fortuny, established in 1888. The night I returned to the cemetery of forgotten books, Isaac had told me that Carax used his mother's surname, not his father's, which was Fortuny. Carax's father had a shop in the Ronda de San Antonio. I looked again at the portrait of the couple and knew for sure that the young man of Julian Carax, smiling at me from the past, unable to see the flames that were closing in on him. Revisiting the book for this conversation, what did you learn? What surprised you most when you were reflecting? I think just how beautifully written it is. And obviously that is a credit to the translator. But like I said earlier, I would love to read it in Spanish and that is on my list. But I just can't believe how well she's translated it. It's Lucia Graves, who is the daughter of Robert Graves. So I was shocked to find that out personally. It reads like poetry. And I just think for a translated book, there's a reason that it is a, a bestseller. It's obviously amazing in both languages. I think it just reads so beautifully and obviously it is a thriller. There are twists and turns, but for me, it's just got another level of just how well written the narrative is. I think it just adds so much that other books don't necessarily have. It's not a straightforward thriller, is it? This is- no, it's just woven with every other trope as well. Yeah. So talking about tropes then, read mm-hmm. this book if you want what? Let's go for twists and turns, quick pacing, forbidden romance, a Spanish history, particularly the Civil War era, and complex characters who you feel like you could meet walking down Las Ramblas themselves. So is there anything else that you want to say about this book? Just would encourage everyone to read it. It's really hard to talk about it and get it right, I think, in a conversation. I think you just need to go and read it. And obviously, me and you both love it. My um, granddad is currently reading it. And he messaged me saying, I love it. My granddad's a very fussy man. So if that's anything to go by, I think it's just hard to do it justice in the conversation. Just go out and read it. And I don't think you'll regret it at all. Brilliant. That's fantastic. <laughs> Tilly, thank you very much indeed. Well, there was a very passionate plea for anyone who hasn't read The Shadow of the Wind. So let's just go out and read it. Yes, indeed. And I would certainly endorse that. Um, now, uh, I <laughs> take you on to the next section, which is uh, our subject, which is which, which is colours. Now, blue has a long and topsy-turvy history in the Western world. It was once considered a hot colour. Now it's uh, considered icy cool. Now, apparently the ancient Greeks um, scorned it as an ugly and barbaric colour, but most Americans and Europeans now pick it as their favourite colour. Um, now, authors use the concept of colour in literature as a symbol to help readers understand characters and events having the power to instantly set a tone and mood. And to to uh, give an example, I mean, in Western films, all the goodies, all the good cowboys wore white and all the bad ones wore black. Now, in literature, the colour blue is mainly used to draw a positive emotional response, and it's a associated with the feeling of calmness, peace, happiness and comfort. But on the negative side, it may be used to represent depression, sadness and gloominess, um, like most of us associate with, which is what's known as the Monday blues. Yes, it's interesting. It sort of covers both sides of the, yes, of the coin, uh, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. But of course, the ever-changing role of blue in society has been reflected in manuscripts, stained glass, heraldry, clothing, paintings and popular 
culture. Mm. Obviously, uh, the uniform of everyday man now is uh, is blue jeans. I'm certainly wearing blue jeans at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and of course, it's the unifying colour of the earth. So we've been looking at the colour blue in our novels. And to start off with, I've got Toni Morrison. Uh, Toni Morrison's book, The Bluest Eye. Uh, she was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993. She received the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Pulitzer Prize for her fiction and has awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honour, in 2012 by Barack Obama. So this is quite an important novelist. And apart from this book, Toni Morrison is well known for her first novel, which was, uh, sorry, which was well known for Beloved, which was the first novel in a trilogy, which chronicles black American small town and the aspects of slavery. For example, one of the characters is a young mother and she murders her own child in the book to prevent her being repossessed by the slave owner from whom she's escaped, which is just awful. Mm. And uh, a film was made of this starring um, Oprah Winfrey. So The Bluest Eye was Toni Morrison's very first novel and it immerses us in the tragic, torn lives of a poor black family in post-depression 1940s Ohio. Pecola, the little girl's name, is a daughter who's both ignored and abused and eventually she finds herself in a white foster home where the little girl prays each night for blue eyes like those of her privileged, uh, privileged white school friends. So in this book, Toni Morrison doesn't flinch from the barest of truths in terms of historical or present day racism facing African-American children in America. And as a result, it's often seen in university and school reading lists in the States. But what's really interesting, I think, is that unfortunately, The Bluest Eyes has also been considered to be a classic of American literature is now the fifth most frequently targeted book to be banned in the States. Good heavens. I know. Uh, So there's Mm. a massive thing about banning books uh, Mm. across the States. And a report this month from the America Libraries Association, which was based on information in 2021, so just last year, um, was saying that library staff face an unprecedented number of attempts to ban books and the bluest eye is at the top of the list of targets. Hmm. So that seems to suggest that it tells some real truths and we should all, mm. we should all buy it. Mm, indeed. Now you've got one that is a non-fiction book, isn't it? It is a non-fiction, yes. And um, you know, depending on you know how how your colours work, um, which is not, I don't think is quite blue, but uh, it's actually <laughs> called Mauve: uh, How One Man Invented a Colour That Changed the World, written by Simon Garfield. We'll just have a little bit of an introduction before I start. Okay. Despite his immense wealth, Sir William Perkins seldom travelled abroad. He had visited friends and colleagues in Germany and France, and he had once been to the United States, but he found the experience tiring and quickly grew weary of sightseeing. Eight days to cross the Atlantic with nothing to do but read and look at the waves. Sometimes the sea made him nauseous. 
In the autumn of 1906, at the age of 68, he resolved to give travelling another chance. On 23rd of September, he boarded RMS Umbria, bound for New York, taking with him his wife Alexandrine and two of his four daughters. He spent much of the voyage writing in his first-class cabin. He had a speech to give a few days after arrival and some letters to attend to. He had recently received a request from a chemist in Germany asking for details of his early life for a lecture he hoped to deliver to his students. Perkin was famous now, and each post seemed to bring inquiries about his career and invitations to celebrations. He wrote in a modest and unflowery style. The first public laboratory I worked in was the Royal College of Chemistry in Oxford Street, London, in 1853 to 1856. It wasn't like the great electric laboratories of today, he noted, with your huge booming furnaces. There were no Bunsen burners. We had short lengths of iron tube covered with wire gauze. It was a grey place. There were many nasty explosions. As the Umbria pushed on, newspapers throughout North America excitedly carried the news of Perkins' imminent arrival. Famous chemist visits here, announced the Santa Ana Evening Blade. British invade City Hall, said the New York Globe. In most cities, the very fact that Perkin had boarded a steamship was enough to make the front page, but the coverage was nothing compared to that greeting his arrival. Perkin and family disembarked in New York, where they were met by Professor Charles Chandler of Columbia University. There is a photograph of them all at the quay in their heavy tweeds and woolen coats, and they don't look particularly thrilled to be there. I'm weary, Perkin told one reporter, who met him at Professor Chancellor's apartment in Midtown Manhattan. A few days later, the New York Herald racked up a list of his achievements and proclaimed, Coal Tar Wizard just arrived in country, transmuted liquid dross to gold. In this story, Perkin had been elevated to the status of scientific saint, his merits placed alongside those of Watt and Stevenson, Morse and Bell. Now, we heard in that little extract, uh, Sir William Perkin at the height of his fame. However, really interesting, his life may not have turned out quite, uh, turned out quite the way it was and could have been quite different if an experiment he was conducting as a young chemist had not failed. Now, the year was 1856, and uh, William Perkin, then age 18, was trying to expand on a hypothesis his tutor, August Wilhelm von Hoffmann, proposed for synthesizing quinine, which was much in demand at the time for the treatment of malaria. Now, the artificial quinine Perkin was trying to achieve failed to come about, and all that he was left with was a brown sludge, <laughs> which Perkin initially thought was actually going to be useless. But However, what Perkin had unwittingly created was to change the world, really change the world of colour. Perkin had invented the colour mauve. Well, that just shows you failures can exactly, sometimes work. Exactly. And in fact, actually, just as a side thing, the, the, the tablet aspirin came about by um, a, a mistake. But anyway, back to Perkin. Up until Perkin's mistake and his subsequent colour, uh, his discovery, colours such as the reds, blues and blacks for clothing, paint and print all came from um, either insects or mollusks, roots or leaves. And therefore, dyeing cloth was not only very painstaking, time-consuming, but also an extremely expensive one. What Perkins had invented was a synthetic dye which could be used on a grand commercial scale. Now, Perkins had discovered that the 
compound, aniline, could be partly transformed into a crude mixture which, when extracted with alcohol, produced a substance of an intense purple colour. Now, fortunately for the world, of not only our world, but, but textiles, art and photography, all of which uh, Perkins had an interest, he became very enthusiastic about the results of this sludge and continued further tests with his friend Arthur Church and his brother Thomas. Now, the trio satisfied themselves that they could produce enough of the purple substance, which they actually called Movane, to make a commercial uh, proposition of it. Indeed, early trials proved um, to be so. They sent a batch off to um, uh, uh, up to a mill in, in Scotland, yeah. and the results were very good. And they found out that in those trials, that when dyeing silk with the colour, it remained stable when washed and even remained stable when exposed to light. I suppose now, that was uh, the, holy, the holy grail, well, wasn't it? It, it was yeah. the holy grail, yes. I mean, they, they got it. It was absolutely perfect. So um, Perkin, no, no slouch when it came to it, immediately filed for a patent in August that year, still aged only 18. Now, from then on, there was no looking back, of course. Timing is everything, as we know, and Perkin was very fortunate that England was uh, the cradle of the Industrial Revolution, which included great advances in the textile industry. And Perkin was po- poised not to make only a name for himself, but a great fortune. Now, he raised the capital by persuading his reluctant father to to invest, uh, went into partnership with his brothers to build a factory, then went on to invent a mordant for cotton, which is a fixing for cottons, and gave advice and technical expertise to the dyeing industry and tirelessly publicised his invention of the dye. Now, so much so, it became uh, very popular with the public and made more so when Queen Victoria adopted a similar colour here in Britain when, in France, simultaneously, the Empress Eugenie also chose a purple colour. And, of course, because Perkins dye was so much, much cheaper, uh, the sales just rocketed away. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and this book, um, Simon Garfield's books, which is all of his books are great, but it's very engaging and it's very vibrant and was described by Esquire magazine on publication as witty, erudite and entertaining. And I have to say, Heather, it's a fitting tribute to a man who gave so much to the world of colour, but sadly is almost completely forgotten. Absolutely. Yes, I must admit, I've not heard of him. No, And I've got to say, Simon Garfield writes non-fiction like fiction doesn't it it's really exciting and it is yeah it's a good tripping along story and you know he keeps you engaged yes and for our listeners you can uh, get the copy because mauve our one man invented a color that changed the world by simon garfield is still available it's uh, published in paperback and published by canon gate in its canons series great that's brilliant now when i was looking at the color blue there are quite a number of books actually with blue in the title somewhere. There are. But I thought we could we could include an Agatha Christie, couldn't we? I think we could, yes. Yes. I think we could. And she's written a book called The Mystery of the Blue Train. All aboard the luxurious blue train running from London to the Riviera. Pampered millionaire's daughter Ruth Kettering is murdered. Her expensive jewels stolen. But luckily Poirot is on hand to solve the case. Now, what I thought was interesting is the backstory of this. So the writing of this book 
which took place on the Canary Islands in early 1927. She'd obviously gone there for a bit of sunshine in the winter. Was an ordeal for Agatha Christie. So 1926 wasn't a very good year for her. Her mum had died and her husband had committed infidelity. So there was a, no wonder she was on the Canary Islands trying to get a bit of rest and recuperation. So she was separated, she was in need of funds, so she went back to writing. And if you look at the copy of the book, it's dedicated to the two distinguished members of the OFD. And the OFD stands for the Order of the Faithful Dogs, which is opposed to the Order of the Faithless Rats, who we can imagine are a member of that club. Yes, (laughs) yes. And uh, poor Agathy, one one of the distinguished members is actually a dog, is is, yeah. is <laughs> which is a show. <laughs> anyway, the story itself um, derived from a 1923 short story uh, that uh, Poirot was involved with, the Plymouth Express. And uh, when she refers to this novel, she says in her autobiography that she always hated it. But uh, needless to say, the critics disagreed. They thought it was marvellous. And uh, the Times Literary Supplement, this is a quote that I've got from the Times Literary Supplement in 1924. It said, uh, what did it say? It said, the reader will not be disappointed when the distinguished Belgian on psychological grounds builds up inferences almost out of the air, supports them by a masterly array of negative evidence and lands his fish to the surprise of everybody. Mm, so the good. novel contains a number of firsts. There's a reference to the fictional village of St Mary Mead, which mm-hmm. obviously, of course, is Miss Marple's home. And it's the first appearance of a minor character, Mr Gobi, who appears in two other books, After the Funeral and The Third Girl. And it also has the first appearance of Poirot's valet, George. Ah. And it was also televised with David Suchet as Poirot, of course. Yes, I, re- I remember that episode. Must admit, I haven't read this book, though, have you? Not read it, no. No, I've just, I've just um, um, visualised it on television. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Your dad would be turning in his grave. <laughs> he would, he would, yes, yes. Yes, I watched my story. <laughs> yeah, yes. But with all like, the Christie books, it's going to be good. Yes, right. It is. So we're, it is. Ju- we're just coming up to the end of the story, but I haven't been chatting to you. You've just back from the London Book Fair. Yes, yes, I was. It it ran uh, for three days last week from Tuesday. I I went in for a couple of uh, of the days, and it was quite interesting. It was it was very busy. Um, it was quite funny not having seen any of my publishers um, for the last couple of years. Having meetings with them as if as if you know we'd only seen them you know. Six months before, yes. it was really strange. But it was very interesting that though it was over the three days, Tuesday uh, up to and including Thursday, it was very, very noticeable how things were dropping off by the Wednesday afternoon. Oh, people, um, not yeah, many people uh, came. No, because it is a trade fair, it's not for the public. Yes. And, uh, and for my area where I travel, which is which is in the Far East, no customers really came over. No. Um, there may have been some European customers, I'm not sure, some from the Middle East. So it was actually basically um, almost 
almost uh, domesticated. And I know that no members of staff, however senior, came over from the US for Penguin Random House. It was only staffed by the UK. So nobody, apart from the the the, the world CEO, who um, Mr. Dole, I think his name is, who is who is German and lives partly in Germany and, and America, yes. he was over. But nobody from the US came over. And a lot of American publishers didn't bother either. Yeah, I think it's quite tight getting back yeah. into... Yeah, uh, I think certainly for overseas customers it was because there's yeah. still various regulations and regimes yeah. about whether they may have to quarantine when they get home. Yeah, but nice to see the world is slowly getting back to exactly, normal. Exactly, exactly. Right, so books we have been recommending today are David McKee and the Mr Ben series and Elmer and the Gift. Uh, also, we've been uh, promoting The Shadows of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. The Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins, published by Penguin. Uh, Virus Poems by Mike Burton, who, published by himself. Uh, Mauve, How One Man Invented a Colour That Changed the World by Simon Garfield. Um, uh, sorry, Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye, by, published by Vintage. Yes, so my thanks goes to the little bookshop, Cookham, for sponsoring the show this month. And of course, many thanks to you for joining us this week. We look forward to you joining Julia and I next, uh, next Wednesday on Turning Pages, the River Radio book show that proves great reads aren't just from the bestseller list. We air every Wednesday between 11 and 12, and the programme is repeated on Saturday afternoon between 2 and 3. And if you're not able to listen uh, during those times or you want to catch up on any of our past programmes you have missed, then you can listen again directly from our website. Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. So you just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast and that will be available wherever you get your podcasts. So that's Apple or, or Google or, or, or the BBC or wherever. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. And we look yes, forward indeed. to you joining us next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. The only one. One that's made entirely.